thank you so much. Thank you so much, Joe. Can you hear me? Oh, you can now. And uh, we're going to be looking at those three passages today. Um, in the 1940s, actually during the Second World War, 1943, an Oxford scholar and academic said this on BBC Radio. You can get a large audience together for a strip-tease act. That is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theatre simply by bringing in a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a piece of bacon. Wouldn't you think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And wouldn't anyone who had grown up on a different planet think there was something equally strange about the state of the sex instinct among us? Well, that was 1943. 80 years later, how true is that now? Something has gone absolutely mad with the sex instinct. Now, I want to make two quick comments here at the start. Firstly, there is some adult content in this sermon. Uh, if you are watching at home, hello, just bear that in mind. I don't want to get in trouble with your nan. <laughs> Although, by the way, she does know all about this. <laughs> Secondly, we are talking about adultery today, and we're talking about uh, uh, sexual sin. And these things are very personal, aren't they? They're, they're, adultery is extraordinarily painful. The pain and hurt doesn't just go away for many years. And sexual sin touches all of our lives. And in whatever form it takes, it's something about it. It strikes at the core of, of who you are. And most of us have things that we're ashamed of. And my goal today, let me say it right now, is not to make you feel ashamed, but actually to make you feel the healing and grace of God in his word. So I've prayed for us while preparing this message that specifically that hearing the Bible's teaching would bring us healing. That the Holy Spirit would speak today in a healing way through the power of the word of God. We're not only going to think about the devastation that sin causes, but we're also going to think about the beautiful grace of God to broken people of all kinds. Now, these ten commandments, you've already heard a bit about them this morning, these are ten principles, ten words, which were given to the Israelite people when they were freed from Egypt, as Chris has said, something near to three and a half thousand years ago. But listen, they weren't given as a set of hoops to jump through. They weren't given as a set of hoops to jump through while the people were slaves in Egypt. God didn't say, now listen, I'm going to rescue you, but only if you can keep this command. He didn't say that. God took them as they were. These people were just as immoral as the Egyptian neighbors, and they worshipped the same gods. They had nothing to commend them. They weren't particularly uh, good, righteous, or uh, upright. God didn't rescue them for those reasons. He rescued them because of his own gracious love, which was sovereign, and because of his promises. And that's the same for us. God isn't holding up the Ten Commandments to you, saying you can be accepted if only you keep this. These are not hoops to jump through. You've already been, if you're a Christian here today, you've already been accepted, forgiven, welcomed into the family. These are principles for how to live as a free person. They're principles for how to live now, how to live a free life, or as one person put it, how to live a life of greatness. 
a great life. Because through Moses, God is giving his people in every generation a blueprint of what it means to be fully human. This is what it means to choose life. And in the seventh commandment, it opens up the biblical teaching about what it means to choose life in the area of sex, sexuality. It's just two words in the original language, and in the English we get five words. You shall not commit adultery. So, three points today, and they're all really simple. Great sin, great sex, great savior. Great sin, great sex, great savior. Great sin. What exactly is being forbidden by this commandment? You shall not commit adultery. In the ancient world, the different cult tribes and cultures around, they did have laws about adultery, and it was known by this kind of euphemism, the great sin, like a really significant sin. And that's what this commandment is talking about in the first instance. It is talking about sexual fidelity, faithfulness within marriage. So at its most basic level, the commandment is setting the bar really, really high for faithfulness within a marriage relationship. God has put it right in there in the Ten Commandments. Just think about this. Last time we looked at one of the commandments, we were thinking about murder, the deliberate taking of someone's life. And right after it, uh, he turns to adultery. So this language is, it, the language is very strong, it's very binding, it's very permanent. You shall never, ever commit adultery. No flirting with it. No equivocation. No gray areas. No bit on the side. God loves sex. He created it. God loves marriage. And God hates adultery with all his heart. He loathes it. So he says, never ever go there. Don't even go near it. Stay well clear. So at its simplest level, this commandment is just there to protect marriage, to put a guardrail, a fence around it, like a wall around a beautiful garden. That garden will be protected by this wall. The biblical ideal for marriage is one man and one woman in a lifelong monogamous union that is bound by a covenant, a promise. It's very sacred. And this commandment is so strong. You shall never, ever commit adultery because it wants to teach us that marriage is really a sacred trust. And we need to hear this, don't we? Because our culture is so jaded and cynical about marriage. Marriage is sacred. The living God whose name is Yahweh I am who I am. He gets involved in marriage here. He speaks to it. It's so important to him. It comes right after the sacredness of human life. Marriage is sacred. It's so important because it is foundational to the stability of a whole society. It's foundational to the strength of the family unit. It's foundational for the healthy nurture and upbringing of children. A faithful and loving marriage is, is, is essential to personal stability for those who are married. And those who have lived through divorce, or you, you remember your parents' divorce, you know just how damaging the breakdown of a marriage can be. The traditional wedding service, which we use here when we do weddings, is based on this biblical teaching. It's quite beautiful. Marriage is a way of life made holy by God and blessed by the presence of our Lord, Jesus Christ. 
with those celebrating a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Marriage is a sign of unity and loyalty, which all should uphold and honor. It enriches society and strengthens community. No one should enter into it lightly or selfishly, but reverently and responsibly in the sight of Almighty God. Now, why does it say you shouldn't enter into it lightly or selfishly? Because it's for life. It's for life. Unless something goes very, very badly wrong or a partner dies, nothing undermines a marriage like sexual infidelity. It is utterly, utterly destructive. It hurts another human being very deeply. And even when there is grace and forgiveness, it is hard to trust again. It leaves emotional scar tissue. So friends, King's Church, let us honor marriage. Let us protect it. Let us treat it with this sacred reverence. Let us never do anything or permit anything to undermine it. Let us do all we can to uphold and strengthen marriages in our church. Spoke to a man this week who's started meeting with a younger brother in the church just to, just to encourage him in his marriage. That's what we should be doing. And if you are married here, or you, if you will be one day, make sure you guard and protect and invest in marriage, especially in the sphere of physical intimacy. So you shall not commit adultery. That's the great sin. But you know there's more. Because the Ten Commandments are not just a series of uh, simple instructions. They're principles for life. And what we're finding is that each one of them is a bit like a, a click box, uh, a click-down menu on a website. You know, you click, and a drop-down box reveals more teaching. We already saw this in the Sixth Commandment. It's not just about murder. It's about protecting the sanctity of human life in all situations. Now to the Seventh Word, the Seventh Commandment. This isn't just about adultery and sex within marriage. At its heart is a demand for radical sexual purity for every one of us. And we know that because of Jesus' teaching. Matthew chapter 5, which Joe just read for us, Jesus taught, he unpacked the law of God. He said, you've, you've, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Yeah, yeah, we've heard that. But I tell you, and this is where the drop-down box comes, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the way of teaching sometimes in those times was to use a male example for a teaching that would apply to men and women. So what he's talking about obviously applies not just to men, but here we have a male example. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. He's making the point. It's very, very serious. Jesus is unpacking the heart of the teaching. It's not just about fidelity in marriage. It's about a lifestyle that keeps sex pure. And it's about taking all necessary steps to avoid sexual sin, even at the level of a look that has lustful intent. Jesus doesn't literally mean to gouge your eye out, or none of us would have any eyes left. <laughs> Somebody get him a glass of water. What he's saying is, do everything in your power to, to stop it. 
Now, we know, don't we, that on this point, Jesus is on a collision course with our entire culture. Talk about the great sin. In our culture, lust is not merely excused, tolerated, and legitimized. It is celebrated. Sex sells everything. It's big business. Somebody told me that the porn industry is bigger than Microsoft, Google, eBay, and Amazon combined. I don't know if that's possible, but it certainly is an industry of billions and billions of pounds. In fact, the porn industry drives many of the developments on the internet. And our generation, therefore, has seen an increase in organized lust that is unprecedented in human history. Just in the last 20, 30 years. It's, it's gone off the charts, organized lust. When my dad was a boy in the 1940s and 50s, the closest boys could get to seeing naked ladies was the lingerie section of a catalogue. That seems very innocent now, doesn't it? What about my children's generation? Look, think of the gap within living memory of those two experiences. The possibilities now for porn are actually limitless. It is accessible, affordable or free, and it is hidden. And this, of course, is leading to more and more sick and sicker pornography as users look for ever darker thrills. Young kids are growing up sharing images of sexual violence by email and on their mobile phone. Um, we're in a storm. We're in a war, actually. There's an urgent call for Christians of every generation to take up arms in the fight for sexual purity. And the best book I've seen on this subject is here. It's by a writer called Tim Chester, who's actually in the church plant in Bakewell with Rob and Claire Scother, and Tim Chester, wonderful author, captured by a better vision, living porn free. It's a superb resource on this subject. And this book does paint a picture that will be familiar to some of us. Um, and this is, this is candid, this is just real life, okay? You see a woman in the street, you take a second look, you look at her breasts, you imagine her undressed. You remember a past sexual encounter or a porn film. You play through a fantasy. As you go home, you consider looking at porn on the internet. Maybe, you say to yourself, maybe not. But no firm no. I'll not look at porn, we tell ourselves. I'll just surf around a bit, all the time hoping for some titillating material. And then it's just a quick look. By now, we're hooked. Lust overtakes us. The temptation was just too strong, we tell ourselves afterwards. But it wasn't at four o'clock when you first saw the woman on the street. Each step was another opportunity to escape temptation. The way of escape was there all the time. The problem was that we didn't take it. There are always many turning points before the point of no return. We need to get into the habit of saying no the moment the thought arises. And we also need to get into the habit of not just saying no, but saying yes to the glory of God and the beauty of Christ. 
This is how lust works. It's progressive. One survey found that 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women are addicted to pornography. My last church, when we spoke about this subject, a young woman, terrific young Christian woman, just came to us and said, look, the way pastors talk about this, it's like it's a male thing, but actually, you know, this is a female problem as well. So let's acknowledge that. 50% of Christian men, 20% of Christian women are addicted to porn. And let's just be real, okay? Many people at King's Church are struggling with this right now, and statistically, many porn addicts are married. This is not something that you start as a single person, and it magically disappears when you get married. Far from it. You take your addiction into the married bedroom. How are we going to deal with this great sin from our culture? I think the first thing is just to be honest. Just be authentic. If it's the elephant in the room, name it. That's the first step. We need help, don't we? The first thing is just to acknowledge that and maybe to do that with a trusted Christian friend, someone in the, of the same sex, and ask them to walk with you and stand with you. How are we going to deal with this? Again, the book that I quoted, Tim Chester, r- recommends five ingredients in the battle against pornography. He says, firstly, there's the hatred of porn. We should learn to loathe it, not just the shame it brings, We should learn to be disgusted by it. He comments in the book that many porn actors and actresses vomit, are physically sick after filming because they're disgusted by what they've put their body through. Many of them are actually addicted to hard drugs simply to numb them to the experience of being in the film. Friends, if you are engaging in porn, you are actually facilitating that You should be disgusted by it. You would want to end trafficking, wouldn't you? But you don't want, if you go into your own bedroom and click on something like that, you're actually facilitating that. We should learn to hate it. But secondly, we need to adore God. We need a desire for God arising from a confidence that He offers us much more than porn. We need an assurance of grace. Listen, God knows everything about you, and he loves you all the same. You are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare to believe. And you are right with God through faith in Jesus, as if you'd never done anything wrong. Between you and God, there is not a cloud in the sky. It's all blue sky. And that should lead us to a commitment to do all in our power to avoid temptation, starting with controls on your computer and your phone and your devices. And then finally, we need a community of Christians who are holding us accountable and standing with us, supporting us, loving us in our struggle. We need all five of these things, not just one of them. You see, lust is the great sin that our culture celebrates and pretends is sexual freedom. But there is nothing freeing about porn, and there is nothing freeing about lust. Lust is the opposite of freedom. It is the definition of slavery. If you're enslaved by it, it gives you no joy. Friends, we've got to be captured by a better vision. Will you commit to dealing with this sin today and reaching out to someone else to help you? Not just on your own. You can't do it on your own. King's Church, will we commit to helping one another honestly and in a non-judgmental way, helping one another to destroy this sin at the root.
Now listen, when God commands, he always provides. God doesn't command you to do something that is impossible for you to do. His provision enables us to be obedient. He never sets us up to fail. And the life of faith is, is basically has been summarized as a long obedience in one direction. The New Testament says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to human beings. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but he will provide a way out. We have to ask ourselves honestly, have I looked hard enough for the way out that he has provided? Have I looked for the exits? There's plenty of exits in this room if we have a fire alarm. God's provided a way out for you. Have you looked for it? Now, so far, which is more than half of my sermon, we've focused on, in a way, the negative side, the prohibition, you shall not. But the Bible doesn't stop there because for every thou shalt not, there's also a thou shalt. For every negative, there's also a positive implication. The flip side of never murder is cherish life. And the flip side of never commit adultery is enjoy married sex to the maximum. So let's move on to the second point, which is this, great sex. And I hope with that title, you aren't going to fall asleep in the second point. If you do, I've got, I can't have given up hope on you. Great sex. The Bible has a lot of positive teaching about sex. It has a whole book dedicated to the subject of romance, sex, and marriage. It's called the Song of Songs. And then there's Proverbs, a wisdom book that says, May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you be ever captivated by her love. It's amazing. The Bible knows that women have breasts. Incredible. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? So the Bible's very frank and candid on this subject. But the most practical treatment of all of married sex is in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, and that's what, what we read earlier. Joe read it for us. If you have your Bible there, the church one, it's page 1148, page 1148. If you don't have a Bible, it's fine, I'll, I'll walk us through it. The writer, interestingly, was probably single at the time. His name was Paul. He writes to a church in a Greek city. Corinth, who were working through what it means to follow Jesus in the area of sex. And in verse 1, he quotes something that they had written to him. Here's what it says, verse 1. Now, for the matters that you wrote about, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. What's he saying there? Seems to go against everything we've just said. Research has shown that the word used for here for have sexual relations is, is an unusual word. It's not talking about sex generally, it's actually, it's, it's got a very specific nuance, which is this. A man using a woman for sexual gratification. That's the nuance here. A man using a woman for sexual gratification to please himself. So he's saying, now for the matters you wrote about, it's not good for a man to use a woman for sexual gratification. And he says, yeah, that's right. 100%. What is going on in their culture is not what the Bible teaches about sex, nor of women. But in case his readers conclude that there's something a bit iffy about sex itself, Paul immediately says 
sex is good. Verse 2, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Look, look here for the mutuality between man and woman, husband and wife. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. It's talking about sex. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Now, husbands and wives here are viewed with a lovely equality. This is completely radical in that time and that world because in the Greco-Roman world, men called all the shots. Paul is going right against his culture. Verse 4, he says this, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Well, everybody would agree with that in their culture. But then he says this, In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. The language here used about sex is of self-giving. Marital sex is a joyful giving of oneself to another. It's a far cry from using another person for your own gratification. It's mutual. So this word authority, having authority over your body, could never be a demanding of rights from a spouse. It could never be a coercion of sex from a spouse who isn't willing. It could never be that. It's about self-giving full of respect and affection. But Paul is, is a realist. He knows that for many people, going without sex for too long will expose them to temptation, especially in that culture. So he says, don't deprive one another. Verse 5. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. He's talking about sex so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now listen, there's no rules here for about how often married couples should have sex. And we would be very foolish to make any sort of rules. Every couple is so different. And in 20, more than 20 years of being a church elder, I've seen more uh, diversity and difference within marriages than I, I think many of us would have thought possible. There are lots of reasons why some people can't have sex much or at all. And there are lots of phases in life where sex is just not on the table. And, and, and sex changes through a marriage from the early days to the older days. And, and, and life is, is, a, is a very rich panoply. We're not going to start talking about rules. The principle is you're caring for each other. It's completely down to you. But the, the husband and the wife are to make sure that their spouse is sexually satisfied. Now, sometimes there'll be times to hold back because the partner is just not in the mood, is ill, is not able. In such times, one should never be selfish. But married friends, your spouse's sexual satisfaction is your business and nobody else's. Now, some people are gifted with great self-control, as Paul himself was, and they may use their gift to stay single and serve the Lord with all of their time and with undivided attention. Paul himself says he could do that. He says in verse 7, I, I wish that all of you were as I am. He can do that. But he teaches that for many of us, we've just got to be realistic about our sexual nature and our drive. Verse 9, he concludes, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, what's the cash value of this teaching? It's that God has given us a good gift. And we should enjoy it within 
the walled garden of marriage. We should enjoy it as fully as possible. Playful, fun, loving, self-giving sex. And here's the key to it. If you haven't got your pen out now, I suggest you do. No. The key to great sex is not self-serving. The key to great sex is delighting your spouse. Great sex happens when you delight your spouse, not yourself. So you've got two people doing that. Watch out for the fireworks. That is the key to a great sex life is self-giving. It's funny, isn't it? Oh, every magazine in the, in the newsagent seems to be about how to improve your sex life. The key is very simple. It's give yourself, which, if you think about it, is the essence of love. I want to speak to husbands for a moment. This is the key to a great sex life. It is that you seek to give your wife maximum pleasure, not yourself. You ask what delights her. Now, if you can be prepared to make sex the most satisfying experience for her that it can be, that will unlock the potential of it for your marriage, and that potential is amazing. Guys, this is also broader than just sex. Men are quite simple creatures, aren't we? You know, we're, we're on one topic at a time. We can't walk and chew gum. <laughs> we've had a row in the morning, we've forgotten all about it, now we're interested in sex. For the woman, it's all joined together. This is broader. Guys, have you changed that light bulb? You know that light bulb? Guys, if you can't do DIY, have you made a phone call? Or does it always fall on her shoulders? Does she feel like the apple of your eye, the one you, you just adore, or does she feel like left luggage? Do you tell her that she looks gorgeous? Do you tell her that you still fancy her rotten? Do you tell her, I can't wait to get you in bed? Do you text her and call her during the day to let her know that she's important? Does she have your attention? Or does she have to stamp her foot to get it? See, both husband and wife are responsible for the health of a marriage, but biblically, actually, the weight rests on the man because he's supposed to be the leader, the servant leader in the marriage. Guys, how is it going? Is your marriage a place of greatness for your wife? What about the bedroom? Here are a few things I learned about great sex over the years. I wish I knew them 25 years ago. I'm a slow learner. Firstly, foreplay begins at breakfast. Start the day well. Get out of bed, start serving her. Make, does she like a cup of tea? You make it. Be attentive. Make the first moves in demonstrating affection, and she will appreciate you making the moves sexually. It's all joined together for her. Guys, be quick to apologize. Do not sulk. Sulking is for boys. Men, apologize and move on. Your wife will be aroused when you act like a man. Make her feel like a million dollars. Compliments, thoughtful little gifts, flowers, your own personal hygiene. Don't buy her a hoover unless you want to spend the night in the doghouse. Again, speaking from experience. 
Have a lingerie budget. Don't go cheap. Guys, outer course is more important than intercourse. Kissing, affection, gentleness, joy, seeking her satisfaction, not your own. Then everyone's a winner. Now, ladies, married ladies, I'm going to ask you a few questions, and I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> but I'm going to run out of this building during the last song. Dear ladies, married, dear, dear wives, <laughs> do you make yourself as beautiful for your man now as you used to before you got married? What do you like to live with? Are you becoming demanding and critical? It's not sexy. Are you sexually accessible to your husband? Or does he have to beg at the door? Do you treat your husband like a king or like an idiot? Now, I know he is an idiot, but it's all about how you treat him. <laughs> the way you speak about him to other people, to other women. The way you speak to him. Do you point out his incompetence all the time? Or do you make him feel like a man? Are you proud of him? Does he know it? You see how this works both ways? But it does work. Attend to these things and sex will get better with every passing year. Now, have we strayed a long way from the seventh commandment? No. Because a key way to keep it is to make marriage sex, married sex a place of greatness. To make it as good as it can be. The glory of God's provision of sex within a covenant is that you have a lifetime of practice with the same person. A whole lifetime of shared memories and experiences that enrich the bedroom. It is so much more deeply satisfying than a series of strangers. Those who have had a promiscuous lifestyle and then entered a vibrant marriage know the difference. Now what about unmarried people? Some can be contented single and they decide they want to use that ability to serve the Lord with all their energy and time. That is a great gift. But even if you're not able to take that path, make the most of your time for the kingdom. Don't waste your single years wishing that you were married. You have so much uh, resource and capacity and time now. You can use it for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. When you're married, you, you have other obligations. And final comment for unmarried people and for all of us actually, keep yourself from idols. Sex and marriage are good gifts, but they can become idols when we make them ultimate. We need to ask, what is the loving Lord teaching me at this stage of my life? Tim Chester, we are God's sons and daughters. If he doesn't give us the partner or the sex or the success we long for, it's because he knows best, because he has a bigger agenda, because he's making us like his son, because he wants us to long for the real treasure of knowing him. Marriage and sex and success can become an idol in our hearts. When we can't have it, we become bitter towards God. God is prizing our fingers away from it so that we can grasp hold of him and the greater treasure that is already ours in Christ. You may not have a spouse or great sex or success or a lot of other things, but you do have the living God. Here's what he says. My son, my daughter, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. And that leads us to our final point, the great saviour. You know, preaching about the seventh commandment brings up our sexual past, doesn't it? And we know that we're all sinners 
and probably sinned against. And I'm aware that today we may have brought up memories and things that you have to deal with right now. We've put a, a, a special email address on here, prayer at thekingcenter.org.uk. If you want to write in and just arrange to, to meet someone and pray with them, uh, send that email. There's only myself and one other person will see it. We'd love to pray with you. As important as it is to make marital sex a place of greatness, it's not the main focus of life, and it's not our main focus today. Because the main focus of the Bible is not on sex or marriage, it's on a bigger vision. There is going to be no sex or marriage in the new creation, and we won't miss it. How do we know that? Jesus himself taught that in the world to come there will be neither marriage nor giving in marriage. Yet, Revelation says that in the new creation there is no sorrow, crying or pain. How does this work? It must mean that in the world to come everything that sex pointed to will be gloriously fulfilled as we move to another level. At its best, sex is intimacy and joy and completion. And in the world to come we will be completed on a scale that we can barely imagine now. We will still have bodies, recognizable bodies. Jesus was recognizable, but heaven is better than sex. And if that sounds impossible, that's because your view of heaven is not big enough. The Bible teaches that there is a future coming that is bigger and better than anything we have yet experienced. The best is yet to come. You might have caught a glimpse of it in the joy and intimacy of friendship, those precious moments when somebody, you feel, this person really understands me. You might have caught a glimpse of it when you suddenly encountered beauty. You saw a mountain or a landscape or a night sky or a sunset. You caught a snatch of music that was so beautiful and spoke to your heart of another country. You ever felt so happy you could burst? You could scarcely contain it? You felt so satisfied at peace, fulfilled, contented, full of joy, that is what it's like to live with Jesus Christ. To experience true joy and intimacy beyond anything this world offers, to see true beauty, to be at rest, utterly fulfilled. These few and fleeting moments that we experience are messages from the world to come. They remind us that we were made for God and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him we will be like him for we will see him as he is and that future is possible for you and me as broken as we are because Jesus was faithful he is the true human who demonstrates complete fidelity he never strayed from the path the father had given him he never betrays our trust or lets us down Jesus Christ is the perfect husband the completely self-sacrificing man. He died a virgin at the age of 33. He rose from death and reigns triumphant, and he will get his bride. Her name is the church. And at, every, at its best, every human marriage is just a little picture of the joy and the intimacy and the completion that awaits the people of God as we enter that consummation when we see the bridegroom. He will reach out his nail-scarred hands to you at that wedding and say, welcome home, 
good and faithful servant. I love you. Enter into your everlasting bliss. Let's be captured by that vision. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, loving Father, we've thought of so many things today that touch our lives very deeply. And we thank you that your word is good and life-giving. Even when it exposes things that are painful, it does so in order to heal. I pray now for us all here that you'd have your way with us now, that you would restore us, strengthen us in every good endeavor, and build your kingdom here. Amen.